If you have a copy of God's Word, could you take it and turn to Esther chapter 2? If you picked up one of the Bibles in the back, it'll be page uh, 284, I believe. Esther chapter 2, and Brother Jim Showers is going to begin reading in verse 19 and continue on even into the next chapter. Beginning in verse 19 of chapter 2. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time... Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's units who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Thank you for reading, Jim. So there are a few things as frustrating in life as not being able to do something that you think should be fairly easy to do. That's why I want to show you a picture and why I found these books so frustrating. Can we show it? Yeah. Uh, You know, my family, my kids, like I think virtually every friend I know can see the magic eye. So there's probably a unicorn or a shark or who knows what there, and you see it. But I, I promise you, I've never been able to see these things. They're entirely frustrating. And please spare me. Don't come up afterwards. Hey, there's this one trick. Like, I've done all those. I promise. I've done all of those. I've done all of those. I was telling my wife that uh, I was going to show this magic eye yesterday. And she said, well, Curtis, it's okay. You're, you're good at a lot of things. <laughs> like, this is a word of comfort. Free Father's Day. I'm good at a lot of things. So that's okay. All right. I'm good at a lot of things, so it doesn't matter. I'm okay that I can't see those things. Now, it's the point of that, I think, of magic eye. Of course, I've never seen it, but that some things are, they're there. They're, they're somewhat in plain sight, 
but you're going to have to look carefully to see and look with a certain, certain way to really detect something that's there all along. Someone compared that to the book of Esther. Because God is present in Esther. But his name's not mentioned. And you have to look, and you look carefully, and you begin to see how circumstances come together, and you see exactly like God is at work in this book, but it it takes another glance because he's never mentioned. We've seen so far in Esther. So in Esther chapter 1, if you're kind of joining us new, we we read of a king who's living large. As a matter of fact, an interesting thing in this book, even in chapter 3, is how many times something is referred to as the king's. The king's palace, the king's house, the king's edict, the king's servants, the king's officials, the king's gate. Everything is the king. This king lives large and in charge, and he's literally whining and dining for six months in the first chapter. He wants to show off his wealth. He wants to show off how powerful he is. He wants to show off his wife. Bring Vashti, bring his wife here, and and everybody will see how beautiful my wife is. But Vashti doesn't come. She defies the king. The king will not be defied. He says, out with her. We'll get a new wife. Which sets the stage for chapter 2. In chapter 2, a new queen is chosen. We, we know her name. Her name is Esther. And she's a refugee. And like no, nothing would tell us she would be the one that would eventually be the queen. She has this contest. She, she's involved in this contest where she spends one night with the king and to impress him, to... Maybe she will be selected as the queen. Why is she chosen? So chapter 2 regularly talks about Esther receiving favor, actually winning favor, winning favor again and again. She has favor. Where, Where did this favor come from? Random circumstances? Or could it be God, God was at work? God in some ways is hiding in, in plain sight. God was at work, even as we read just a few moments ago, as Jim read in Esther chapter 2, the end, the queen's relative, Mordecai, plays an instrumental role in saving the life of the king. Mordecai is this official. It says that he sits at the gate. It doesn't mean he loiters. This is saying he has some position of prominence. He sits there as an official, and in that capacity, he overhears a plot to assassinate the king. And he tells Esther, and Esther tells the king, and Mordecai gets credit in the archives for saving the king's life. And, and you begin to ask what-if questions. I mean, there's, there's lots of what-ifs that could be played if you want to play that game in the book of Esther. Like, what if Mordecai hadn't been sitting at the gate? And what if Esther had, like, distanced herself from Mordecai? Uh, she didn't need him anymore. She's the queen now. What, what if there hadn't been that relationship? And, and what if Mordecai just happened to not overhear this plot to assassinate the king? And what if it hadn't been recorded? The whole story of Esther would actually play out very differently. But this is a God who is at work. There aren't really the what ifs with God. He's at work. He's present. Even as his name's not mentioned. And all of that is meant to steady us as we go to a dark dark chapter of the Bible in Esther chapter 3. This dark chapter tells us of an evil person who launches an attack that then puts God's people in a dark place. 
an evil, an evil man launches an attack that then puts God's people in a dark place. I, I want us to see this evil person. When we, we read about it just a moment ago, we have King Ahasuerus promoting Haman. What's interesting, if you come off of chapter 2, we fully expect someone to be promoted. We just expect it to be Mordecai. He's the one that saved the king's life, but instead of Mordecai, you actually have Haman getting promoted. We're not told why. We're not told what pleased the king about Haman, but he gets promoted in this empire while Mordecai goes unrecognized, at least for the time being. And it's just interesting, these verses, the king has to command, has to command that people bow down and show submission, pay homage to Haman. This is a world not where respect is given out of a, a willing heart because of someone's character, but where it's demanded, you will, you will pay homage. But Mordecai doesn't. It says there at the end of verse 2, Mordecai doesn't bow. Others in the Bible did. So why exactly does Mordecai not bow? We're left speculating. There's lots of interesting speculation. But at the end of the day, we don't know exactly why he refused to bow. It seems that he was connect, it was at least connected to him being a Jew. But maybe he just had this stubborn streak. Maybe he says enough is enough. Maybe he says, I'm not, I'm not going to bow down. This is, this is not even like a, a whole worshipful bow. This is, in other words, just kind of paying homage. It would be the equivalent of a salute or tap... Uh, taking your cap off and saying, you know, some sort of respect. This isn't like deep, full-on worship. And other people did this in the Bible, but Mordecai doesn't. Mordecai doesn't bow down. And in a cutthroat world, what this does is seem to put a bullseye on his back. You can imagine the king's officials, they're all, all around Haman, as they begin to talk with this one about, about this one who is sitting at the gate but doesn't bow. I mean, you just kind of, I wonder how all that went down, how they made it known. Are they having a conversation where, Haman, we're so glad you are where you are. Everybody, everybody loves you being in charge. Well, except for one. But everybody, I mean, everybody except for one is really, really grateful you're here. I mean, wh- how do they rat Mordecai out? To say one's not bowing, it doesn't even seem like Haman notices it until they bring it to his attention. In verse 5, it says, When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. He's got this promotion, he's big stuff. You ought to know it. But then there's this one guy. And it makes him angry. There's something, there's so much in the Bible about pride and arrogance and foolishness. When we think we're something, how angry it is when other people just don't recognize that we're God's gift to creation. This is Haman living some of those Proverbs out. Haman's pride and his arrogance and his foolishness is actually, as you go deeper into the book, this is what's going to get him killed. The promotion feeds him. 
it seems like this takes him even to an irrational place. So he, he can't even stomach the idea. So did you notice it said he just, he doesn't just have a problem. It says he disdained to deal with Mordecai alone. This is a personal matter, right? One-on-one. He said, no, no. He wants to kill the whole, the whole group of people that are associated with Mordecai. It says in particular, they had made note to him the people of Mordecai. Haman sought in verse 6 to destroy all the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And this is as silly as a, an office disagreement where I don't give you the respect you deserved in the office and all of a sudden it's like, I'm going to kill you. And you have Native American, Native American heritage and Swedish heritage and German heritage. We're going to wipe them all out. We're going to wipe every, every remnant of who you are. We're going we're to wipe it out. This is the same as the king who just escalates this personal matter in chapter 1. Now we have Haman doing the same so, foolishly so, because of a personal slight. As the story goes on, we begin asking questions like, where, where does this come from? Where does this sort of pride that leads to anger, that leads to like complete rage that desires extermination? That's not hard for us to understand our even recent history, world history. tells of, uh, us of hatred. So Dachau and Auschwitz are monuments to hatred of Hitler, to exterminate the Jews. I remember going in Cambodia to what they called the Genocide Museum, where Pol Pot was just eliminating people. It's certainly when you've got pride and, and you've got rage and you add to that a racial dimension, things look awful, awful. And that is what we have. And you begin to ask, like, what is driving this? What drives the, a, a genocide like happened in, in Rwanda? What would drive uh, the, the ideology of ISIS? I mean, what, what drives such a murderous intent to eliminate people like this, to, to murder? What drives that? And, and yet we have to know. We, we know where that impulse comes from. Although we have a human, we do have an evil person. We know what stands behind this kind of evil. Revelation 12 and verse 9. The description is of a great dragon, the devil, Satan, who deceives the whole world. Jesus would say in John chapter 8 and verse 44 that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. He's a liar. In John chapter 10 and verse 10, it says the thief comes only to steal kill and destroy. Friends, we know this, where this impulse comes from. Martin Luther even said it, our ancient foe seeks to work us woe. His craft and power are great, armed with cruel hate. This is, this is satanic. There are certainly satanic overtones in Haman's desire to just eliminate God's people. So an evil person who has power, it actually gets worse as he begins to, to work out his plan of extermination, his evil desires, his pride. Look, look at verse 7. So now we go from this evil person to, we go to a launch of an attack. 
In verse 7, it says, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor. Uh, that is, they cast lots. It's, ancient archaeology tells us it's very, very similar to modern-day dice. They cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till they got the one they wanted, till they got the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So Haman believes, he believes in something bigger than random occurrences. What he does not believe, though, is in the providence of God. He believes in the fates, a lucky roll. What month is it? What month is it for my enemies to go down? Give me a lucky roll. And he rolls the 12th month. Pinpoints that day. To say, this is, this is the time. Forget a sovereign God. I'm going to trust the fates. They've given me the right day. And we're going to go forward. Verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad. They're dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They do not keep the king's laws. So that it is, it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Or another way of translating that would be to give them rest. So king, you should make their life miserable. Haman is now dealing the way the world deals with. So there's truth. There's some half-truths, or more appropriately, half-lies. And then there's just complete lies. The truth is, there is a certain people, and they're scattered all throughout the provinces. That's true. Their laws are different. They certainly were. Although many were were not keeping the laws at this time. But he says, like, yeah, they don't. And you can imagine, like, when the pronouns start, like, they, they all, you know how they are. We know where that goes. We know the dimensions of those kind of conversations and how they're used, especially when they're used in a racial tone or an ethnic tone. They don't... (laughs) You know how they are. They don't keep your laws. What's interesting is Haman never identifies who it is. Did you notice that? The king never asks. Haman never says. But they don't keep your laws. Well, the fact is, let's tell the truth, Haman. You've got one guy who's decided he's not going to tip his cap to you. And now you're blowing this up to say, they're everywhere, all the provinces, they don't, they don't they want to obey you, king. And then it's a total lie to say it's not to the king's prophet to give them peace, to let them dwell in peace. All you have to do is consult the previous chapter where one of these very people, a Jew, Mordecai, saved the king's life. That certainly was to his prophet. But Haman is twisting it up as he begins to go further in his description. Look at verse 9. It says, If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have the charge of the king's business. That they may put it into the king's treasuries. The king took his signet ring, it's the authority from his hand. He, he gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. 
the king said to Haman, the money is given to you. The people, you do with the money and the people whatever seems good to you. We're told later, this is a bribe. I mean, money talks, right? And you get right down to it. The economics of the situation are brought in and a king who seems to be very inattentive like the only things he pays attention to is the voice that's close to him is going to whisper something in his ear. King, I think we should. And he's always seeming like, good idea, good idea. Let's do that. Sure, why not? Seems like these are the, this is the, the backbone of this kind of king here. He's got a whisper in his ear. Money talks. Do whatever you want to, Haman. Do whatever you want to. The king says, fine. I mean, we can read this, we could read this and say, I don't see any God here. It's just the same old bribe, superstition, lies, human nature. But behind that, behind that, there's something more, isn't there? Something else is going on in the story. What is driving Haman's hatred of God's people? Can I just tell you, since there were human beings, since sin entered into the world of human beings, there have been those that hate God's people because they hate God. This is not a new thing. As a matter of fact, even the way it's told in Esther, this is a long-standing war of God's people and their enemies. When the enemies of God are seeking to devour God's people. I want you to see uh, a chart because we have in this chapter, we've got Mordecai and we've got Haman. And Mordecai in chapter two is called a son of Kish. And Haman is called an Agagite. Mordecai is recognized as a Jew. And remember verse 10 said that Haman is the enemy of the Jews. And we think, what, what is, why is the conflict so strong in here? Why, is, why are we prompting a, a genocide as the solution to here? But then you back up and you recognize these names like Kish and Agag. They, they've been seen before in the Bible together. When you go to 1 Samuel 15, you have Saul, who is the son of Kish, you have Agag, and you've got this war, and, and, and we don't have time to dig into that story in 1 Samuel 15, but it would be interesting reading this afternoon to see how Saul was given instruction to deal with Agag as an enemy of God, and he doesn't. He doesn't. He lets him live. And he's, he's rebuked for that. But actually, the story goes even before that. Because you go to Exodus 17 and you realize Saul, who's the son of Kish, who's a Benjamite, is, is a, a Jew, is a person of Israel, and Agag is yet another representative of the tribe of Amalek. In Exodus 17, Amalek is trying to destroy God's people as they come out from Egypt. From the time Mordecai to Exodus 17 is about a thousand years. in which there have been enemies of God going after God's people. This is not new. This isn't just a world of random occurrences. There's a spiritual battle. And Christians, sometimes I wonder if we, if we think there, nah, there, there's no, no spiritual battle. I mean, we all know like the little angel on our shoulder and the demon that kind of pokes us you know, to do some bad things. And do we not realize... Do we not realize what Jesus said in John 15? If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus clued us in that not everybody is going to sing the praises of his followers. 
The world does hate the people of God. Romans 8 says, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And, and we see the, the hatred uh, of God's people in some big, big ways, right? We think of the persecuted church. So I just walked in the door this morning, not, not really thinking in threat of my life. Am I going to worship with God's people? We're going to gather gather Christians together and we're grateful for the liberty, but we also know there are people around this globe that could not worship in the same way we did today. That being a pastor, even being a member of a church, getting baptized would signal to the watching world, you're an enemy to be tormented, to be persecuted, yes, maybe even to be killed. And here we do, we worship, but let us not put our heads in the sand. We see We see the hatred of God's people and of God in big ways. We see it in small ways, and I in no way compare it. But do do you not know that there are Christians that have people target them every single day? Maybe you've experienced it because you're living out your faith. You're not trying to cram anything down anybody's throat, but you're living out the implications of your faith. You're trying to be honest, but then that happens in a world where people aren't so honest. Or you're trying to be pure, but you go to a school where, like, purity is not high on the priority list. You try to, you try to keep your, your life right. You try to keep your words right. You don't join into this, or you don't participate in that. You don't fudge the, the numbers uh, on the books so everybody else kind of looks bad because you are, you are doing an honest day's work. And people target, and they say... Why do you have to do that? Why are you messing it up for every one of us? This is is the world we live in. They did hate Jesus. As a matter of fact, Acts 4 gives us a vivid description of that. David prophesies about a thousand years before Jesus. The Gentiles rage. People's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed, which is Jesus. And Peter in his sermon in verse 27 says, Truly in this city there were gathered together against Jesus, Herod and Pilate and Gentiles and and even Jews. But God is still in control there. They are only doing whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. We have to remind ourselves that we ought to be aware that we are in a battle and that it is raging, but we ought not be afraid. That's why we open this morning singing, Whom shall I fear? That's why we know, again, as Martin Luther said, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. That's why we can hear Ephesians 6, verse 10, that says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, so that you put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So we ought to be dismissed with God's grace because we are going out into a world that that can very well be hostile. That doesn't mean that everybody is targeting Christians all the time, but it should make us aware that there's a deep spiritual conflict against the people of God. Philippians 1 says, stand firm. You don't have to be frightened in anything by those that would oppose God, oppose his son, oppose his people. An evil person launches an attack. And that means... That God's people are put in a dark place. Not hypothetical. Not imagined. But this all-encompassing empire targets God's people. So the word annihilate is going to come up. Is that God's people, the Jews, are targeted here. And their destruction becomes like a whole group project for the empire. Look at verse 12. 
The king's scribes summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And they, they have this edict according to all that Haman commanded. It was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces, to the officials of all the peoples. Notice the scope the author is trying to tell us. To every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women, children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples. Be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king. The decree was issued in Susa the citadel. The end of this verse is pretty astonishing. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. One challenging part of reading the Bible is I've actually read Esther 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. But when that decree goes out, there is no Esther 4. They don't know. They don't know. You can imagine moms and dads. You can imagine grandparents. What do you do? How do you deal with this? They have to answer a question very quickly about what they're going to do. This is the worst thing imaginable. A world thrown into chaos a group project targeting your, your ethnicity, an accelerated timeline, and leaders who seem to be like enjoying some self-congratulatory, well, we did away with the king's enemies, to the king, cheers, and the whole city's thrown into confusion. We'll look in later weeks at how like Esther and Mordecai and the Jews responded, where the story leads. I, can we just pause for a moment? Can I ask you a question? How do you respond? How would you respond? How do you respond when your security is threatened? How do you respond when the future is unclear? How do you respond when powerful forces aren't on your side and they're not even neutral, but they seem to be pushing the opposite direction? How do you respond when you have days like this one? So, They had to blow out a candle and go to bed not knowing their fate. There are times in our lives where we have no resolution, where we have confusion, where our days seem to end up with more doubt than certainty, and others seem to be enjoying their lives as yours blows up. What what do you do? How do you respond? We're told how to respond as the people of God. We have a response. We have a response even when it doesn't come easily. And even when it's not perfect, and it rarely is. Lamentations 3 gives voice to this response. There's such important verses. It's written at a time where, I mean, by the name of the book, you know, it's not not all is going well. It's a, a lamenting time for the people of Israel. And listen to what Jeremiah says, I call this to mind and I have hope. In other words, it wasn't anywhere close. I had to bring it to my mind. I had to think about it. That the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And I just wonder, sometimes on Sunday, you have to turn out your light, you have to go to bed, and life is not completely resolved. You don't know how the future is going to go. But this scripture says, 
The mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation for the Lord. Did you notice, like, that's not a promise of immediate deliverance? We sing when darkness veils his lovely face. I rest in his unchanging grace. How do we respond? We have to have hope. You start watching someone you care about age. You're a primary caregiver and you're worn down. Life begins to get darker and darker. You go on a job hunt or you're just trying to hang on to the one you have. The relationship that seemed to matter the most to you has blown up in your face. You care about a family member. You're dealing with real pain, physical pain. It just struck me this morning, probably three out of the first four people I said hi to at the beginning of the first service. It's a widower that just lost his daughter-in-law. There's a widow that lost her husband a couple years ago. There's another widower sitting next to his daughter who joined him for Father's Day. I just think, I, I think of the people that come into this room, and it's not because, like, life feels really good. Certainly, some Sundays it does, but often it doesn't. And we come into this room, or we make a call, or we send a text, or, or maybe you are like, I am. I, I feel like I need God's people, not just one day a week. I need them regularly. I need to be talking to them. I need to sit across the table at, at a lunch, or, or have a cup of coffee. And I need, sometimes, I need people to remind me that this world is seeming like it's going dark, but there is hope. We can call this the mind that the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. And I don't want to wait till like disaster strikes to have that web of relationships that's going to call me to hope in the Lord. I want to deposit all the time into that account so that when my heart is breaking, when it seems like the rug is pulled out from under me, I have some, I have some reminders, some friends that are going to pour into me and saying, we can continue to hope in the Lord. I do wonder, I do wonder if you're not a believer if you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're not yet sure of this God who I've talked about this morning that is so powerful, he can work behind the scenes, I wonder what your strategy is for dealing with a world that goes dark. In all seriousness, what do you do when the thing that matters most to you is slipping away? Do, do you, you try to just grit it out? You tell yourself, if I, if I think positive thoughts, maybe, maybe something will change, maybe something will get better. Do, do you just find yourself in despair? Do you look for the escape? And maybe it's a hobby or maybe it's a substance. You just kind of get through the day get through another day, get through another day. The people of God, we are called to have a very different story than that. And if currently you'd say, Curtis, I, my world is like falling apart and I don't, I don't really know what to do with it. I'd say you are made to live in a different story, a story 
set by God who made this world, a God who loves us, a God who loves you, a God who made you to trust in him. I I look at Esther and I see this world where it just seems like they're victims and and what I do know is God's going to bring hope and relief to even the victims. But then I think we're actually not just victims in this world, we're also rebels against God. So what will help us? What will help us when, when we feel the full effects of sin, others in our own? We've rebelled against God. All of humanity stands condemned justly before God for our sin. See, here's what happens when the world gets really, really dark. We have to begin thinking of eternal things. You see, for the Christian we know, in Jesus we have a willing mediator who actually takes the death sentence. He doesn't even escape it. He takes the death sentence for us, for his people. God sends his son to fully taste the world of sin. Jesus lives perfectly, suffers greatly, tastes the full fruit of rebellion against God. I think of Jesus even on the cross. It says that the world literally went dark for some hours. I'm giving a good picture when God judges sin, this is what it looks like. It, it, it is a dark place. This is what humanity does with the world. Everything goes dark. He suffers on the cross. First Peter 2 says it this way. When he was reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Church, hear this in verse 24. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. But in that darkness, we live to righteousness. By his wounds, we're healed. Oh, our story is one of straying like sheep. But in Christ, we've returned. We've returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. He's ushered in a new story rises from the dead, like he deals with sin, he deals with death, and ushers in a new story, and now calls out to those of us, you can have new life if you place your trust in me. If you turn from everything else, turn from every other hope that you might have, and you trust in him, turn from your sin, turn from your, your, even your righteousness, and trust in him, follow him, fully rest in what he's done, not what you can do. Is your life defined by that story? Is your life defined by that story? If not, it can be. Today you can. Today could be the day of salvation. You cry out to the Lord. Lord, save me. Can I ask you to bow your head? It's helpful to talk with people when you're dealing with like some of the big things of life. The big concerns of life. We're going to sing, praying for the Lord, to, praying for Jesus to come to our rescue. And after we sing this song, there will be men and women available to talk with you, to pray with you. You're saying, I, I, I'm in a dark place and I need help. I need hope. Lord, give grace this morning. For those who are believers, I pray once again they'll be reminded of the truth. For those who have yet to put their faith fully in Jesus, give them eyes of faith. Give them faith to believe. 
what may have even always seemed like a, a totally irrelevant story to them, now it becomes very real. Open up eyes in our congregation. Open up hearts to believe, to pay attention to what you're saying today. In spirit work, save people. Pray there be no hint of, of fear. There would be boldness in saying we trust in Jesus Christ. We ask all this in his name. Amen.